Yeah, all right. All right. So what are we talking about today, Drew? House of Horrors aside. Um, we're talking about something not horrible at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk about uh, women's wrestling. Um, this podcast and a lot of the examples we give, a lot of the history we give, um, you know, we'll be honest. We probably unfairly focused far too heavily on, on men competing and there are several reasons for that uh in terms of just the history is sort of longer uh it's obviously a sort of male dominated uh performance uh form uh but uh women's wrestling uh is an important part of that history um both in terms of its sort of development on its own separately uh as a sort of separate area and its sort of integration into the larger professional wrestling experience. Uh, so whether it's, you know, going to see women wrestle and that's its own thing, or women wrestling is part of a larger sort of variety show, um, there's a lot to do there. So we, we want to spend some time uh, talking about that. And, and I do want to just address before we start, like, yes, we are two dudes uh, mm. talking about women's wrestling. Uh, I... I'm certainly going to try to not like, you know, uh, try to talk about their, you know, experience in the world uh, unless, you know, we, we can kind of quote some of these people. Um, but there is definitely an interesting history in how it's changed the perception of women's wrestling as legitimate or not, uh, its role as either sort of uh, sexual titillation or kind of serious endeavor. Uh, there's a lot to dig into. So, um, uh, it's something we've been wanting to talk about for a while, and um, hopefully we'll we'll sort of set the stage here, and then also, you know, all those other things that we've talked about and will talk about, titles, match psychology, all those things also obviously exist in women's wrestling, but, you know, there's always, there's going to be differences. Uh, there always will be, um, and that's worth talking about. So I think, you know, we, we talk about wrestling a lot of times as kind of a unique subculture with its own identity and its own sort of standards and norms and conventions. And for, you know, a a number of of historical reasons, women's wrestling is a subculture within that subculture. Um, To to a large degree, um, it it has been almost kind of ghettoized into its own little corner. And um, at various points in times, there have been... um, there have been performers or promotions that have broken it out of that, uh, but that has been the exception more than the norm. So when we started uh, digging into kind of what the history here was, and, and now we'll, we'll hop into the time machine. I call it a way back. We just set it, turn it on, open the door, and there we are. Or were, really. Oh, yeah. Where, where are we going? So we're, we're actually going back way further than uh, than I thought we would. We're going back to not just the early days of women's wrestling, to the early days of wrestling. 
Um, women's wrestling as a concept, as an idea, was it evolving in the same environment as men's wrestling was uh, in the old Carney circuit, where you would have women who would wrestle each other or a woman who would wrestle someone out of the crowd or wrestle a man, and it was a, a test of strength. Come and see the Amazon woman who can, can beat, up, uh, beat up the men who would come to the ring. Um, According to Wikipedia, the first uh, world women's wrestling champion was Josephine Blatt, who reigned in the the 1890s, and she kind of fit this mold. She was a strong woman, uh, you know, in in kind of the classic lifting large triangular weights kind of way. Um, And so women's wrestling kind of followed this path. Um, not particularly gaining a lot of notoriety in parallel to men's wrestling up until the days of Hackenschmidt and Gotch, who we've talked about before. Um, and did so in that sense of, okay, this is kind of a legitimate sport. Uh, there is a, a real test of competition happening here. Um, but never really in the limelight. And a big part of that may have been, you know, there, there was no Hackenschmidt. There was no Gotch for women's wrestling. And yeah. you didn't really get that until the 1930s. And the yeah. first real women's wrestler of note that we come across is uh, Clara Mortensen. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of, again, part of the reason it, it might be sort of under, underappreciated or, or, or underpopularized is, again, we talked um, you know, about that history is, that, is how close wrestling was linked to sort of boxing and uh, other other sort of legitimate sports uh, and their presentation. And you had people kind of moving between those spaces. I, I feel like there's probably less opportunity there uh, mm-hmm. with women. Certainly uh, at that I mean, period there of was, time. Right. And I mean, that's not to say there wasn't uh, sort of women's combat sport at, at the time, but certainly not to any extreme degree. Right. I mean, this is, uh, you know, we're only a few years out from women getting the right to vote, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, the idea of, of a woman, you know, of watching women sort of, uh, you know, fight or in some sort of combat was, again, culturally, that's not a very woman-like thing to do. So I think they were working against this sort of culture there, uh, and, uh, and and I don't say that like, oh, we don't have that problem anymore. There are still plenty of people who, who think that. Uh, but certainly at the time when we're talking the 20s and the 30s, um, up until even the 50s, um, yeah, this sort of cultural position of, of femininity, mm-hmm. you know, wrestling and combat is sort of against that in some ways. Um, and then, yeah, that, that there aren't those ancillary ancillary. Uh, institutions around which wrestling is always related to women didn't have that so I think the fact that it did get as popular as it did this early is is really something um, and and again you know wrestling once we start getting a little bit later it you know it's more of a performance art and you know there's still physicality there but it's like you know why can't we there's there's no reason we can't uh, also have women wrestling so you, you talk about kind of it, it getting bigger and bigger, and, and you know, Clara Mortensen was an important wrestler in the sense that she was the first women's champion since uh, she won the belt in uh, 1932. It had been vacant since 1925, so 
brought that idea of a women's wrestler back into the spotlight, but the, the woman who pioneered women's wrestling during this period and, and really pioneered the genre was the woman who beat Mortensen for the belt eventually, and that was Mildred Burke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's, it is worth spending a little bit of time on Mildred Burke and her story because mm. um, when we think back to the, even you could say pre-1980s, 1990s period of women's wrestling, Mildred Burke, I think, showed the potential of what women's wrestling could be to the broader genre. Um and also really embodied a lot of the, the pitfalls that, that women would try to encounter in breaking out of that. Um, so Burke was, um, at one point in time, if I'm, I'm remembering this correctly, Burke made as much money uh, as a women's wrestler as Joe DiMaggio did playing baseball. Wow. Selling out you know, 10,000, 15,000 seat venues, headlining cards. Yeah. Um, she, she was a, a legitimate superstar and defined, and this was kind of the, the importance of her, you know, when we think about the break of what she did versus what came before, she was very much the gorgeous George of women's wrestling. Defined the presentation aspects. So other women's wrestlers would come to the ring in sort of you know, dark colors or athletic wear. Mildred Burke always wore white because it made her sparkle when the lights hit her. Um, Outside of the ring, very glamorous, diamonds always, you know, exotic furs, uh, exotic evening gowns, and v- very much sort of creating for women's wrestling that same character that Gorgeous George was creating in men's wrestling at about the same time. Mm-hmm. And to, to just emphasize how sort of, how many more obstacles she was sort of facing, and so Again, this is this is the era of the uh, NWA, National Wrestling Alliance. So again, uh, just a quick recap: you've got sort of these regional promotions that are geographically based, but there's, you know, the NWA sort of is is a is a loose confederation of all of them, so they can sort of work together and share talent and things like that. Um, and you know, the people in charge of that were not always the most open. Uh, to women's wrestling or even listening to women on in terms of how they should run their businesses or who should, you know, where people should be on the card. Um, you know, the NWA is then, you know, oh, like, you, you know, you got to get in to, to sort of, you know, have that that prestige that comes with the association. Um, and it was hard to do that at, at those local levels you know, you could maybe have more opportunities because there's more individual control, but um, to, to be that popular in the NWA uh, was a really big deal. Um, and, it, and it wasn't, and yeah, a, it wasn't it was an not, accident. I mean, that, right. that, that, no, she was, she, she worked and got that. Yeah. She, she worked at it and she, and this is kind of the, the second half of that coin, um, you know, to, to your point, promoters and that they were not keen to to buy into women's wrestling uh, and the the one person who really did was uh, a guy named billy wolf who incidentally was mildred burke's husband um and i i think it is it is worth pausing on this um you know don't speak ill of the dead and there's two sides to every story but you know i i haven't heard the other side of the story and no one seems to be speaking <laughs> it up billy wolf was a son of a bitch like he, he was everything you read about him he was a genuinely awful person 
um, and, and you know, very violent, very abusive, um, you know, and his, his partnership with Burke uh, ended in, uh, in, in acrimony, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But Wolf was, for 20 years, the promoter who actually believed in women's wrestling and built what was, for all intents and purposes, a traveling promotion of women's wrestlers. Um, that contained, you know, June Byers and Mae Young and, you know, I- any number of, of Golden Age women's wrestlers and toured the country with them. And under the auspices of the NWA, his promotion was women's wrestling. That was the game in town. Yeah. And again, that sort of, uh, you know, we're, we're going to sort of do our, sort of do our own thing. It wasn't like, oh, let's just sort of envelop women into a pre-existing sort of promotion and like, oh, it'll be a nice sort of, uh, you know, break from the male action. We'll throw a women's match in there. No, like, as you said, like, we're going to actually focus on sort of women's wrestling, women's promotion. Um, I think that's really important to, to sort of start things um, a bit more on their own terms. Though, as you said, again, like, you know, these women are doing a lot of work, but still, the promoter is still a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's sort of, you know, he's calling the shots and he's ultimately the one getting the most money out of this deal. Um, and so it's not really until a little bit later that we get more uh, women sort of also sort of behind the scenes, if you will, uh, in more of those ownership structures. That takes another couple decades. Uh, or about a 10 years to, to get into that era. So, you know, uh, they're, they're definitely setting the stage there because you got to sort of prove your worth that mm-hmm. people are interested in seeing this. Um, and then, you know, hopefully gain that sort of influence where you can uh, start making those decisions on your own and hopefully make more money. And, and I think what what's kind of the, again, because the, the way we're structuring this, this is, a good chunk of this entire podcast series is really a wrestling 101 at this point. So there's a lot we could go into with each particular figure or point we're talking about here. But in, oh, in, yeah. broad, in broad strokes, Mildred Burke was the uh, the NWA world, or uh, yes, because she was incorporated into the, the NWA, uh, world women's champion for about 15 years. Um, you know, a couple of title trade-offs that lasted a couple of days, but more or less unbroken. Mm-hmm. Um, she and Billy Wolf had a very, uh, very acrimonious split, uh, a lot of personal violence, a lot of philandering. Um, it, it happened to coincide with, um, and you can dispute which, which was cause and which was effect, a general downturn in women's wrestling, uh, that ultimately broke both of them financially. Um, and led to, uh, I, I found this fascinating, uh, Burke ultimately had to defend her belt against Wolf's new headliner wrestler, June Byers, in a fight. Yeah. It, it, they went to the ring agreeing that they were going to have a shoot. Oh, gosh. At, which is the oldest of old school wrestling. Okay, go out and actually try to win this ring, this belt. Uh, Burke lost a fall, but it was a two out of three contest or two out of three falls contest the match was thrown out when buyers couldn't compete anymore and so there was a dispute to the belt at that point mildred burke kind of faded away june buyers kind of faded away and billy wolf kind of faded away 
and women's wrestling um, what was up for grabs. Yeah. I mean, that, that sort of establishes some of that right there, right? That, you know, so much of her, um, you know, unfortunately for how popular she was and you know, how much work she was putting in, like how much of, you know, her ability to, to get out there and to succeed was tied to, unfortunately, yeah, this guy, Billy Wolf, yeah. her husband. And because like, he controlled you know, the NWA connections and he right, had the promoter exactly. relationships. Exactly. So, you know, it's, it's, it's sad that it was a sort of, sort of personal falling out led to uh, this much larger sort of uh, institutional falling out uh, because yeah, those were really, that was the main place in town. And once, once Billy says, I'm not doing this anymore, uh, you know, it's, it's hard again for women to sort of pick up the pieces there uh, again, because of those connections with, with the NWA and the rest of those sort of male promoters who are maybe not as interested in uh, working with, with those women. So uh, yeah, uh, I think this is, so in, in terms of timeline, we're sort of into the fifties right now. Um, and I think it sort of, as you say, sort of cools off a little bit there. Uh, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm jumping ahead, but really the next sort of, probably big name is, is fabulous Moolah. Yeah. Um, sort of post buyers, um, post Burke. And, and she was a sort of contemporary of theirs, but, um, she ends up sort of coming in, uh, sort of taking on that lineage of that sort of the NWA sort of women's championship. Um, and then sort of, ends up accruing quite a bit of power. She, uh, she, not... she became, by, by dint of identifying a power vacuum and ruthlessly filling it, she became right. the combination of Mildred Burke and Billy right. Wolf. She yeah. was both the talent and the promoter who ran her traveling promotion with an iron fist. And there was no ta uh, promoter champion conflict because she was the champion. Right. And so you're going to think, right? Like you, if you thought there was like maybe an issue of nepotism with Billy Wolf and his wife being mm -hmm. the champion, uh, think about the promoter being the champion. Uh, and that's sort of uh, fabulous moolah. And I mean, there's, there's a lot more to her to talk about. Yeah. Uh, uh, we'll sort of, we'll do a little bit, I think here, but I, you know, I'll already encourage you to sort of look into this more because her, this story of her sort of reign, uh, and I almost want to say reign of terror. Oh, that's the right because way to that is sort of how at least sort of more contemporary histories sort of trying to correct the stories here because you know it was like oh wow, Fabius Moore was like one of the most important women's wrestlers of all time, and you know she was honored frequently in WWE and WWF into her old age, uh, 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 sort of in comedy roles, but always as sort of mm -hmm. this really important women's wrestling figure. But like, there was very little talk of what, how she retained that power. And yeah. that would be through sort of all those sort of horrible stories you could think of, of sort of manipulation and threats and violence of, sort of retaining power, both in terms of like the 
narrative uh, symbolic power of the championship, but then the actual power of like, you know, who who's performing, who gets paid, who gets what. I mean, that she she covers that whole gamut. So two two points here. No, number one, again, Moolah consolidates power within the world of women's wrestling. But women's wrestling is it's still its little subculture. Um, mm. And Moolah, as a woman in this period of time, might have had the same challenges that Mildred Burke did in establishing those relationships with NWA officials, who were all men. Um, and so she she found a patron or a sponsor for herself that could provide that legitimacy without taking over her business interests. And that ended up being Vince McMahon Sr. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a, a large part of Moolah's sort of legendary reputation, uh, you know, as this iconic figure in women's wrestling, is ultimately tied to the broader narrative of wrestling history of the McMahon's slow conquest of the wrestling world. Um, she, she ended up being in the good graces of the people who wrote the history books, which is not a bad place to be. Mm -hmm. Um, The the second piece is, you know, you you talk about the, all of the things that Moolah did that were underhanded or or shady or violent. Um, I think that there, there is, there is a real argument to be made and you're seeing more people make it that Moolah did a tremendous amount of harm to the world of women's wrestling in the 20th century. And and she did it in any number of ways, but the big one to me is there is is an argument about uh, representation and being able to see someone that you identify with on on whatever level, you know, race, sex, religion, um, performing in, in, in a way that inspires you to follow in their path. And during Moolah's reign, the only women's wrestler in the U.S. that anyone knew about was the fabulous Moolah. And it was Moolah against a bunch of scrubs. And Moolah was not a a ring technician. She was not a particularly impressive athlete. She was was not doing much of anything except winning these matches and carrying on with her promotion. And I just... I, I think now, you know, especially looking at kind of the crop of women's wrestlers in the world today, how many women took a look at women's wrestling in the 60s and 70s and saw the wasteland that Moolah had created and decided, I'm not interested in that. And you, yeah. you, you had a Moolah's reign in the 60s and 70s led to a talent vacuum in the 80s and 90s. In mm-hmm. a way that I think really set the entire entire genre back. Yeah, and you know, and the, in terms of the representation, I mean, this it, it wasn't even just the fact that you sort of like, oh well, why would I get in there if I can't even succeed? Because this person is sort of sucking up all the oxygen uh, in the room. But there was genuine fear of mm-hmm. about your well being. Uh, in this space, uh, women uh, in any workforce, uh, not just professional wrestling, uh, are there's always a fear of being taken advantage of, uh, whether we're talking sort of sexually or even financially or uh, just sort of your well being. Um, and it's almost, it's not ironic, it's, it's tragic 
that the sort of source of so much of that in women's wrestling at this time was actually coming from a woman like Fabulous Mula. Like this was not, I mean, there were plenty of men who were uh, implicated in a lot of her, her sort of problems, all the, mm -hmm. all these things that she did. Um, and I'm, I'm trying not to go into too much detail because it's, it's sort of, uh, depressing and also you know there's lots of accusations out there but uh, to, to suffice it to say there are sort of people who have accused her of sort of pimping out her her performers um you know not just in terms of you know uh performances but sort of like offering them up performances as to, so to, to right to to other men in the industry um and so yeah like so you also have so beyond just sort of creating that talent vacuum that you mentioned, it also sets them back in terms of how they're going to be perceived by audiences, but also promoters and mm -hmm. talent managers and all these things that it, it reinforced and it created and reinforced, you know, this system of women are there as sort of objects or as certainly as sort of being on a lesser level. Um, and so they have a very particular place and that, as you said, with that power vacuum continues into the 80s and definitely into the 90s uh, yeah. and early 2000s when we get to what's really just the lowest point. Well, I mean, what we've talked about with Moolah is pretty low, but yeah. this is also insanely low because you just have like sort of this peak where any semblance of women wrestling uh, is 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 sort of a, a very weak excuse for women sort of performing as essentially sex objects or sort of for the titillation of the audience there that certainly existed throughout but there wasn't even once we get into the 90s there's like there's not even a pretense of wrestling here and again we're skipping some time here you've yeah. got some fabulous wrestlers in the 70s and 80s you've got wendy richter uh is is sort of fantastic you've got mm. bull nakano uh blaze uh, got wonderful people uh and that's another thing we're telling a very american story yeah. and i think later i'll we'll we'll talk about some of those we'll get to those uh in a second um so there are other people there but again the sort of the general lay of the land is is yeah it's pretty it's pretty bleak and, and uh, time period w when we kind of get you make that point about kind of the portrayal of women's wrestlers in terms of sex. And, and to your point, that, that's not a new thing necessarily, and that's something that was, you know, core to the appeal of Mildred Burke. But it was always, um, you know, sex married to athleticism. Um, and, you know, what one, one could argue that uh, if you go back to um, kind of traditional representations of masculinity like Hackenschmidt and Gotch, it was there too. Like this is, oh, yeah. this is something that's embodied in the form because when you get right down to it, it it's a couple of sweaty people grabbing each other for an no, extended I mean, You said it's embodied, right? Like yeah. there's a, again, the history of strong men and, and fitness and uh, fitness, uh, you know, mm -hmm. competitions, you know, yes. Like yeah. the gaze, whether it's male or female, it, it's always there. Like we're always, Wrestling will always be about like looking at bodies in some way. Uh, but of course there are differences when it comes to the women. And, and, um, and it becomes and, particularly yeah. bad in the nineties because you, 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 have... like you said, yeah, we get, we get away from it's 
looking at the body as a sort of athletic, uh, you know, achievement and more as a sexual achievement, right? Like, I mean, a good example, like contemporary example, you know, think of like uh, when they do the body issue, mm-hmm. uh, ESPN's the body issue. Yeah. It's ESPN, right? Who does that one? Yeah. 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 Like that compared to the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition. <laughs> Both of those are sports magazines showing off women's bodies and male bodies in, in the body issue. But for very different reasons, right? Like yeah. the body issue in ESPN, you're seeing naked women and athletes, but it's not for sexual titillation, really. It's about like, wow, look how defined their like the human form is at this mm-hmm. peak. And so, yeah, there's a huge history there that, you know, it's a spectrum. It's not yes or no, but it swings very wildly. Uh in certain directions uh and not before we jump and i know i led us there but before we jump into the 90s uh we should mention as our sort of entryway to the 90s and one of those and it's interesting like positive maybe negative uh moments is the first uh uh televised uh all women's wrestling program which is glow Mm -hmm. uh comes out in the mid 80s into the early 90s uh glow stands for the gorgeous ladies of wrestling um and we had talked about previously the sort of uh, MTV rock and roll era of the late 80s, early 90s that sort of got into WWF um, and, and even further. And Glow was that, like, on steroids. Cranked uh, up. This is all neon. So bright and colorful and loud. And I'm saying these things not as negative or at all, just like, it's up to you to decide, but yeah, these were over-the-top characters, over-the-top costumes, over-the-top everything, uh, but it did pretty well. Um, it's another situation where, you know, there is some shadiness in terms of, like, the guy who actually is owning it and running it. Uh, it was kind of run out of uh, the Riviera in Vegas, uh, and he had some dealings there, and there was a lot of... Uh, like shilling of products on there. So glow was great, but uh, wrestling wasn't the highest priority No, uh, in terms of the art form of like, it was more about goofy characters, uh, you know, like silly promos. And there was a lot of uh, bear Chicago bears esque rapping yeah. uh, in glow, uh, which is not aged well. Um, no, no, but so it's very silly and and so it's tough in terms of you have all it's all women and it's clearly about sort of women empowerment in a certain sense and that's good but on the other hand it's still sort of not treated as seriously um it's certainly popular but and again i think that it, it talks about being in this, especially in the eighties, this sort of transitory space of, um, you know, Oh, women are getting visibility, but is this maybe the best form of visibility? Um, and yeah, so it, it, it leads to a, a, a bizarre, uh, little text, uh, uh, in, in this history. So you've got through the eighties, you've got, uh, you have glow. You have Wendy Richter briefly in the yeah. WWF, um, and ca- carrying forward the the lineage of the belt that Moolah had held. Um, at, at a couple of different points, the belt gets deactivated. Uh, Alundra Blaze has a run, deactivated again. 
and women's wrestling, um, you know, disappears as you go through the 90s. But women do not disappear from wrestling. Um, no. you, you have a period in the late 90s when you know, you're, you're leaning into the Attitude Era where everything is, not everything, but shock value is certainly high up on the list of priorities. Um, this is the age of Jerry Springer. This is the age of, you know, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and uh, the age of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. And the, um, the shift in priorities, one could say, uh, at all major levels of U.S. wrestling uh, moves dramatically towards sex. I mean, uh, Clinton's in the White House. And <laughs> I, I, I just came there. I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to yeah. say that. Uh, as you were saying, yeah, this isn't just a wrestling uh, moment in the culture, but, uh, you know, this is also when wrestling's at its most visible in the mainstream. And unfortunately, when wrestling's at its most visible in the mainstream, uh, the vast majority of women participating in this uh, visib high visibility moment are either not wrestling or the wrestling is not really emphasized. No. And so, you know, and there are plenty of examples one could get into here. Uh, I don't want to get into all of them, but you know, you've got, so for example, you've got, and we mentioned it last week with WCW uh, has the nitro girls uh, as this sort of uh, cheerleader esque uh, interstitial, but then they even get like roped into storylines and things. And so it's not even like, no, they are part of, of everything. They were like a big part of the movie we watched. Yes, um, they were. And you're like, wait, what? Um, you know, there's no mention of women actually wrestling uh, in those in those instances. Uh, and then in WWF, WWE, you know, you've got Sable. Ends up sort of breaking out in terms of the ma of mainstream visibility by she appears on Playboy mm -hmm. uh, as this sort of big moment. Um, and they start pushing her to the moon. Uh, they were like, so long, Mark Marrow. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of interesting looking back on that because it's like she she literally starts as a valet for her uh, real-life husband, Mark Marrow, who is not that great of a wrestler. But she was uh, so... And they emphasized so much her, her sexuality and then the Playboy issue. It was like, oh, we've got a star here um, based nothing on sort of what she was actually doing in the program really uh she had this sort of outside fame uh partially and yeah and then like they emphasized her and i think and then she sort of becomes a template uh going forward in a lot of ways um for a lot of those performers so the, the idea uh, wrestling is by and large uh, a culture of imitation to some degree. Mm -hmm. and, and templatized is a, a good way of describing what happened with, uh, with Sable because you, you saw in the post-Sable era, because she left WWF in, in 1999, you saw a, a glut of performers that were, to one degree or another, repackaging of Sable. Um, mm -hmm. and, and this continued for... You know, a decade after she was gone, um, it, it would be 
within any given period of WWF history, you would have uh, the sex pot wrestler who would pose for Playboy yep. and get involved in storylines and not ever really do any wrestling or do anything wrestling right. related. And it would be, okay, this year it's Tori Wilson. This year it's Candice Michelle. This year it's whoever. Um, yeah. You have this move, but it, it I... I think that that story gets told. I think it is worth telling the story, though, that as this is happening, yes. there are some women who are pushing themselves as wrestlers. And, Absolutely. And, and not, not even, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the, the big ones that we get to in a minute, but um, e even in kind of the, these dark days, you've got, uh, you've got Ivory, you've got Jacqueline, you, you have women who are either either learning to work or who are working just to carry the torch. Because, like, Ivory may well have been a really great wrestler. She didn't have many people to wrestle against. And mm -hmm. I mean, she, I mean, yeah, and she's interesting, right? She came from GLOW. Yeah. Uh, one of the only people from GLOW to actually, like, continue in wrestling. Because uh, they were all just, like, aspiring actresses. And so was, yeah. and so was uh, Ivory. Um, and it's interesting. She, yeah, like sort of has to apply herself. Like you mm -hmm. can't coast on, um, well, I mean, the only, like you either have to be like the sex kitten mm -hmm. or like, yeah, you're going to have to like really sort of, again, like, again, like in any other uh, industry or genre of entertainment, like you kind of got to work twice as hard. Um, and you're, yeah. And the other thing is, yeah, as you say, if you don't have the people to work with, you can't, like, there's only so much you can do. And so, mm -hmm. you know, wrestling always requires you working with other people. It, you, no one can get over by themselves. And, yeah, so, and, and so one of the reasons why, yeah, you kind of have this downtime is there's only so many people and, uh, you know, they can't, you know, if only one of the people actually has wrestling training, it's not going to work. Uh, and there's only, and there's not much you can do. Uh, you know, Sable was a multi-time women's champion. Yeah. I don't think anyone remembers any of her matches. Um, and not to say that she wasn't like doing her part. Like I think she worked hard. She did some good stuff, but that was clearly not the priority. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, as a meta commentary, I want at least a couple of like every time oh, yeah because that was the best part of sable was the when then she came out it was a good it was a good entry it was it, it's kind of like the stone cold yeah i that i remember that so visit so vividly um anywho you, you were uh, what 13 you were very impressionable that's what i was focusing on <laughs> not the yeah print bra thing which was like, wow. Yeah. Uh, and again, as you said, this is like pushing the, pushing the envelope here as, as much as we can. And we're going to use women to do that mm -hmm. um, to sort of grab those headlines. Um, but yeah, I mean, so you, you the other, but the person, the other person who comes out of this late nineties era is also China. Yeah. Who is in some ways very much on the other side of this spectrum. For somewhat. I mean, she also ends up posing for Playboy. Uh, uh, yeah, like I, mean, I think you, you, but, you can talk a lot about kind of China 
post her her prime period, but within the context but in which she appeared, like ninety seven to two thousand. Exactly, and like when she, like what a journey she sort of comes on because when she first comes in, it is completely as she's the bodyguard of DX mm-hmm. of Triple H and Shawn Michaels, like. What? Like you're shifting this completely. She's this big, intimidating woman who's like not smiling and like is not like clearly not there for your enjoyment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of badass. Um, and that that was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have. There's a reason why people remember China so much, and it's because I don't think you have many instances of someone a woman introduced in that way and sort of holding on to that for as long as she did, which wasn't even that long, but it was just, it was such an impactful uh, appearance because it was like, here's a woman where we're not sort of like, she's incredible because of her, like being incredibly strong as a woman, but in some ways don't over, they don't overemphasize the woman part. Um, you know, and the fact that, you know, they called her the ninth wonder of the world, uh, after Andre the giant being the eighth wonder of the world. I mean, that was, that's like a sort of, if anything speaks to the sort of, uh, uh, legacy that they were sort of attaching with her there. It was like, okay, we're not even putting her in terms of women's wrestling. We're just putting her out there. Um, and yeah, it, and it's uh, kind of interesting that she comes in around the same time and it's like, Oh wait, we can also push the envelope not just in terms of like showing, you know, more and more of a woman's body, but we can push the envelope in these other crazy ways of like what if we presented this woman as this like silent badass bodyguard. You you, yeah. ha- you had in this period I would say like a a holy trinity of women's wrestlers that defined maybe not necessarily defined the era, but who, who gave an example to future women's wrestlers of what was possible within the context. You had China, you had Lita, and you had Trish Stratus. Um, and each kind of coming at it from a different angle. With, with China, I mean, China's appeal was, to some degree, it was spectacle. Like, oh my mm-hmm. God, look at what she's like, doing. Like Andre the Giant yep. being the eighth wonder of the world, right? Like, it's not about wrestling acumen as much as, yeah, just the spectacle. What can this person do? Yep. And Trish was Trish started off largely as sex appeal. Um, oh but, yeah, she but, was in the sable mold a hundred percent when she started. She was she was the manager of a tag team called T and A. Yep. Uh, I mean, it doesn't get more straightforward than that. Test and Albert. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh. Um, but by you know by dint of the work that she did, she turned herself into a really good wrestler. Um, and, and kind of show, showed that sort of possibility. And then Lita, um, I feel like since that period of time, like we've had people kind of do the China thing, albeit not to the same extent. We've had people kind of do the Trish thing, or we've had a lot of people try and fail to do the Trish yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think we've had anyone really do the Lita thing since mm-hmm. her days. Like, I think, I think. In the U.S., certainly no. not. I mean, obviously, so like Lita's, sexy star or someone. Like of course, like Lita's big thing was that she was, in some instances, sort of doing high fly, you know, team extreme. Uh, so, you know, it's not a woman showing excessive strength, 
uh, as the sort of spectacle or a woman being sort of technically savvy. Uh, I don't think anyone would say, I don't think Lita herself would describe herself as the most technically adept wrestler, uh, but the sort of the, the, the high flying, the speed, the sort of high risk uh, uh, aerial maneuvers. And, you know, she trained in Mexico, so it mm. makes sense. Um, and she originally came in, right, with Juventud. Uh, no, no, with uh, uh, S.A. Rios. Uh, no, S.A. Rios, that's right, yeah. excuse me. I got them confused. Uh, I, I don't similar... think anyone would blame you. Yeah, they had similar builds, and I think they both had, like, same haircut. Exactly, yeah. but uh, S.A. Rios, that's right. Uh, Hoovy was over in, in WCW, for the most part. Um, but uh, anyway, um, and yeah, I agree. I don't think, I mean, WWE has never... Like they have always kind of tokenized uh, sort of uh, mm-hmm. Lucha Libre style wrestling. It's like we need the one Lucha guy. He's our Lucha um, Right. And we're going to kind of put him against all the other non-Lucha people, which is why they always struggle getting over. Like Rey Mysterio is the only person who really made that work. Yeah. Because he found a way to work Lucha into a non-Lucha style. Yeah, um, even Eddie Guerrero wasn't really wrestling a lucha style. No, no, uh, no. I mean, obviously he has that heritage, but Eddie was not in that style at all. Um, he 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 took from it absolutely. But um, anywho, and Lita isn't a hundred percent in that style, but she was sort of speaking to it. And I don't think they've ever. Uh, I agree, they've never really found anything that that sort of hit that as well. Um, and it's interesting because all those people also did the sex. They did. Um, like there, there China, were, it was brawls, and, brawl and panty matches. Right. Lita sort of interestingly was sort of later in her career with Edge does the rated R shtick, uh, which is kind of interesting. But I, I, that, I, can, I can forgive that though, because that was really great character work. Like she oh, was, was great. She was loathed. Oh, and I'm not saying it was a, a sort of bad thing or I, I, it's curious because she wasn't of course introduced in this way. And in, mm-hmm. in some ways, we hated her because she was not the sex pot. She entered as part of Team Extreme with the Hardy Boys. Well, again, the S.A. Rios thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Poor S.A. Rios. But, um, you know, she doesn't enter as this sort, you know, she's, she starts from a place of being this sort of uh, uh, athletic performer. And later she sort of transitions into the sort of sexy valet mm-hmm. and almost that's almost helped. I think the, the sort of heel reaction that she got, cause it was like, Oh, like it's like, which is kind of crazy that they got that because it was like, we don't like you because you're doing this to yourself. Like we think you're better than this, but it's like, like wrestling in this industry, in this company has been super sexified for like the last, 10 or 15 years like yeah. like but and and that's why like you say like even though she was doing that work it was it was subversive almost in a sense in terms of you know she was doing it in a way that we weren't supposed to like and the fact that she was able to do that was yeah really great so, um and you know yeah her and edge just worked really well together i want to ask you a question because i'm thinking about <laughs> this period in history um you had I mean, China was not generally wrestling women. She wrestled men more. But within the women's division, between yeah. like about 2000 and 2006, 
It, yeah. You had Trish Lita. You had Molly Holly. You Molly had, Holly. You yeah. Had Mickey James. It was fantastic. You had yep. Victoria. You had yeah. uh, Beth Phoenix toward the tail end. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. You had That's like uh, 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Who else was in there? Jazz was in there. A little. Yeah. She was. She was like late at it. Yeah. Like. Yep. At sort of early 2000s. Um, but you. You. You had a. A, think, a talent yeah. pool in, in, a, in uh-huh. a way that there have not been many deep talent pools of women wrestling in WWE. Um, well, and a, and a, sorry, uh, a big part of that is the, the sort of diva search era. If so, I'm, if I'm so not jumping I, ahead, I, but yeah, I, I, sorry, I, go you, ahead. Yeah, you, you, yeah. you might be getting ready to answer my question. Okay, great. Because my, my question is at that point in time, you had a deep talent pool. You had legitimate stars within that group. And you had a strong supporting cast. Um, and we look back at that now and we, we think that was a, a strong period of women's wrestling, but there's also always like this wistful feeling of like, uh, what, what might've been like, why couldn't it have been bigger than it was at that moment? And so my question to you is with the talent that they had and with that structure, why don't we, or why didn't we get that? I mean, you can, we'll talk about this in a minute. Like today we talk about the women's revolution and you can talk about how much you feel about that, but why didn't we get that then? Mm-hmm. Um, we did a little bit. I mean, they did tout a little, you know, like there was, you know, Trish and Lita main eventing Raw as being like a, a, a sort of big deal that the women like put on the final match. Um, it sounds so like simple now, but it was like played as a, as a very big deal. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there's a lot. Well, first off, there's a couple of one in the immediate sort of early 2000s. You have a talent influx after the buyout of WCW, mm-hmm. a, a male talent flux because WCW was not producing women's wrestlers yeah, not, at all. Not many. Who, so who who came over on the women's side? Stacy Keebler, Tori Wilson, Charmel yeah, eventually. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, former Nitro Girl, uh, but she never wrestled, did she? She might have done like a mixed tag thing with Maybe, She yeah. was not a wrestler. She was um, a valet, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I think part of it is they were, they had other interests, uh, as is usually the case. And so I think, I think that was part of it. Um, you know, I, some of it is, is surely demographics and them just thinking, you know what? Especially in the 90s, they knew that their audience was primarily male. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they were like, okay, like we need to play to that um, primarily. Um, I think, I, I mean, I usually am going to come down on that. Like, I think we don't get the good stuff until you prove there's a market for it. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, like, once you get more women watching the shows, maybe we should, um, you know, emphasize the women more. Um, and so you're in this period that's like basically all the way up till the PG break. Uh, that, yeah, they sort of it sort of curbs any uh, growth they could have had uh, building off of the names that we just ran through. Um, and part of that was also their talent development, that they weren't investing in developing female talent or finding female talent, which is 
brings me to the diva search sort of era, which kind of starts around like 2006, I think. It, yeah, um, it was right around there. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's different reasons about this. Apparently, um, actually, 2003 was the first uh, wow, year they started through 2007. Yeah. Um, and I mean, at this time, uh, I think, yeah, yeah. At this time, uh, I think John Laronitis is talent manager. And apparently there are stories about, you know, him doing this diva search is just a way to sort of like, you like looking at women, right? And if you're not, so the diva search was like a contest where they would search for their divas. And we'll talk about diva as a term in a moment because it's very important. Yeah. But uh, this diva search is like, hey, like, let's, you know, have people watch women compete to be on our programming. And mostly you're getting just sort of models, people who are not interested in wrestling. Uh, though you do get some some real winners yeah. out of these pools. Uh, Michelle McCool, uh, Maria Canellis, uh, who's now doing great work on the indie scene, um, come out of this. Uh, I'm sure there's some more. Uh, well, Layla, Layla, I thought, did really well. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Eve Torres. Um, that's right. Eve, you know, she left right when she was doing really well. Yeah. Um, but then you, most of them were not great. <laughs> um, and uh, they, yeah. So, so that, their investment, they suddenly were, that was their primary focus. So you were, we were suddenly back to, we're not even interested in finding wrestlers. We're interested in finding, uh, you know, image, you know, models, people, you know, um, yeah, and so this sort of yeah mid two thousands to late two thousands, just it just kills any of the momentum you could have had from those really uh, wonderful moments uh, that you had mentioned. I, I have a hypothesis. Uh -huh. My hypothesis is this: uh, it's Trish Stratish's fault. <laughs> and and let, let me explain. Um, okay. Because no, nothing bad about Trish, but Trish came into WWE as a fitness model and she was doing the TNA thing mm -hmm. and she worked her ass off to become a great women's wrestler. Mm -hmm. And I think that talent management missed that, missed the things about Trish that enabled her to do that. She had a very pure natural charisma. She had yes. a raw athleticism that she could shape like she, and she was willing to put in the work. And instead started to think, well, she was a fitness model, and then she became a wrestler. Therefore, right. fitness models are our talent pool for yeah, women's wrestlers. Yeah. And you, you saw through some of the Diva Search folks, through a lot of like the anointed female representatives of wrestling for the next you know, several years. Um, it, was, it was blonde, athletic-looking women. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, good point. But who were not by any stretch of the imagination wrestlers and that's you get the kelly kelly's of of mm. of uh of that era yeah no that's a really good point right like fitness models or uh uh bodybuilding models yeah. uh that that's a skill set but is it translatable and i think that you're raising a really good point there where mm -hmm. it's like um one does not 
uh, automatically lead to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need other things. See Brooke, um, comma, Dana. Yeah. And I, but I mean, like, absolutely. But even like, you know, um, you know, Alexa Bliss is, I think she did a little bit of, yeah. of fitness modeling as well. And she's, I love her to death. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's part of it. And it's thinking, but this gets us back to that question of the sort of talent pool all the way back when, right? That where, where are they coming from? And wrestling and, and sort of male wrestlers already, even in those like days in 2000 had a talent pool because there was always an independent scene yep. um, that you could, that was sort of, you know, working its way through and you could sort of pluck talent from there. Um, but you didn't, you know, the independent scene was never super strong for women, um, especially at those times. But that's changed now. Um, so one of the reasons that WWE has been successful now is, one, of course, you have NXT, so they have a much stronger developmental unit. But they had developmental at the time uh-huh. back then. They just maybe didn't put as much effort into it. Um, but you have a much stronger uh, women's wrestling scene on the indie circuit. And so I think that's maybe why you got a little bit removed because you had the like Trishes and the Lita's that sort of inspired and got women watching and interested then. But then it took them a while to, to actually grow up and train mm-hmm. and sort of rock now. And so now you've got places like Shimmer uh, and then a Partner Shine uh, in Florida. Uh, Shimmer starts in like the mid late 2000s um, as all women's independent wrestling promotion. Um, you also have, you know, more sort of equal footing on some of the, uh, or at least more egalitarian or equitable. I don't know. That's, you know, they're, they're, you know, women appearing on, you know, independent shows and, and things like that. So, you know, it gives a talent pool for WWE to draw from. I think there was more of a talent pool there that they could have drawn from. Mm -hmm. But again, when they were doing these things like the diva search, they're like, you know, let's get either fitness models or dancers. Like a lot of them were former dancers and it's like, Oh, they're athletic. They're athletic. And it's not that they aren't, but do they have a sort of interest in there? And so, yeah. And who knows where it'll go. Right. Like Naomi is another one who's like, she was a dancer. Right. And like, uh, you know, She's yeah, you know, she's doing pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, a little a little uh not crisp always, but uh uh I she's, think she's getting there. Yeah, yeah. Um and again, to your other point, one of the reasons she can get there is because you've got those other people for her to work with. And so right? that, that um, I, th- I think gets gets to kind of the the heart of it today. Um because uh, again, you, you've got to some extent, the effects of what uh, what these wrestlers do and what women wrestlers have done um, is is delayed by a generation. And so you mm-hmm. have a generation of women's wrestlers right now who their exposure to women's wrestling when they were young was not, you know, 65-year-old fabulous moolah, you know, <laughs> punching a some no-name woman. It, it was watching Trish and Lita and watching Molly Holly and watching kind of that that core stable of women's wrestlers um, and being able to take something from them, take inspiration from them. And I don't, I don't know if that has necessarily meant that, you know, oh, we, we, now we have so many more great women's wrestlers. Now we have more women's wrestling 
And Mm -hmm. from that, you are more likely to find people who are capable of being great. And in terms of talent pool, you can talk about utilization, but in terms of talent pool, I would say the, the women's division or divisions in WWE have not been stronger. How they're mm-hmm. being used, you could make an argument about. But oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's also across the board. I think they're how the entire talent roster is arguably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, but I mean, like, also it's strength, right? Like, yeah. like literally, like, like WWE revitalized both their developmental system and their relationship with independent promotion, and those two factors um, are why you have such an incredible talent right now. Um, because WWE used to be really into home growing and you can still do that, but it's like, dude, like they've, it's like they finally figured out, or again, management and people, talent, uh, search people change. Like just because they aren't WWE, like you should totally go to these independent shows. Like these people are getting trained and they're, you know, working with crowds. Yeah. It's not a, you know, 15,000 person arena, but you know, you can then just train them that part. Um, you can help them transition to that part, but if they already have those skills. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a sort of larger issue. And and again, so having that uh, for the women as well, uh, that they can have, you know, whether it's these independent promotions or uh, that are solely women's wrestling or part of a larger promotion. Um, yeah. Like that's always going to be great, and I mean, yeah, I, I think it's 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 interesting because even I think one of the reasons that we would argue it's better now than ever is because you also you, like you have less of the non wrestling variants mm-hmm. where like really for the last while like you've had very few like non wrestling like like just managers or valets where their whole sort of whole existence is their sort of, uh, you know, to look at them and to be pawns in the men's games and the men's storylines. There's still some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's one of the reasons why that sort of Lana uh, feud between Ziggler and, and Rusev was so terrible. Cause it was like, what do you do? Like we haven't had a woman is just an object for mm-hmm. this men's storyline in like, 10 years or at least five years and it was just like oh wow like i didn't even realize how refreshing that was until i see them trying to do it again um and and, and i think that's part of it too it's like it's going to re if the only women you're seeing are women in these sort of active roles in their own in charge of their own stuff it reinforces that okay that's what they're supposed to do it's not like oh some women are good at the wrestling but some are just good to look at it's like no like we should all have them presented in this way so and and like i feel like there's this is about to go wrong for lana um oh gosh i I feel like when yeah when lana was kept to being the manager um she she worked very well in that function when you bring her into the ring and you start making her either the object of a storyline or now asking her to wrestle, um, that, yeah. that might not end well. Yeah. I mean, there was not, there's nothing wrong with a woman being a manager. Yeah. Or about, Bob, like, Bobby Heenan wasn't, uh, wasn't doing a lot of wrestling, nor was Paul right. Bearer. Paul, Paul Heyman, right? Paul like, Heyman. Lana was basically just doing Paul Heyman work and doing it very well. So, um, 
you know, there's nothing wrong with having women in a variety of roles, including non-wrestling roles. Um, I mean, we can talk about that too with things like with Renee Young. I feel bad that she's only kind of doing post shows and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's better, but um, that's the sort of next barrier, I think, for WWE. Like they can tout this women's revolution all they want. They don't have any women on commentary. Uh, the only women in positions of power or on-screen position of power are Stephanie horrendous yeah. uh, or Vicky Guerrero, Vicky. who was amazing, but we're supposed to hate her, but she was great at it. And a lot of people like appreciate how good she was at getting us to hate her. Mm -hmm. But if you understand my meaning, so um, there's still plenty to do. Um, it's still when the voice is still a masculine voice. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's unfortunate. So I, I, I think that um, we're, I, we yeah. are we are about to hit, I think, a test of that. Um, mm -hmm. WWE has announced that similar to the Cruiserweight Classic from last yeah. year, there is going to be on the WWE Network, which I think this is a great use of the network, uh, a, a global women's wrestling tournament um, where women from all over the world compete um, who knows what they're competing for or how they're going to build oh them up God. at this point. And they, at least the rumored, like, they seem to have some A-plus talent, like, in this pool. Similar to the Cruiserweight, uh, especially, like, they've, they've got some of the, the best wrestlers out of Japan uh, coming in. Um, yeah. And I'm sure, like the UK tournament, like the Cruiserweight tournament, it's sort of a soft pilot for... Do we have an all women's mm -hmm. show in the future? And I, um, I, I would I, bet when they do this, to your point about the the voice, I would bet one of the voices in the booth uh, is might be Renee Young, one might be Lita. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, and I hope so. I hope it's someone who's got some training, though. Um, I mean, Renee Young did not do great, but they need more opportunities, right? It's again yeah. like when you don't have the model there. Um, you need something to build off of. I'm sure they'll do that like they did with Daniel Bryan in the Cruiserweight or Nigel McGuinness in the mm. uh, UK tournament. Um, absolutely. Uh, and I 100% think that that's the goal. Um, that's what they did with the Cruiserweight. That's what they did with the UK. They're like, we're going to do this sort of one-time thing, so we're not going to sign you to sort of these long-term contracts. You know, we can just sign talent for an on, like, this performance sort of deal but we use that as a sort of like soft, like try out mm -hmm. slash audition slash let's see how you kind of get over. What's going to, what's the reaction going to be. And I agree. That's a perfect way to use the network. Like that's so smart. Yeah. Um, and those, that's why everyone's loved both of those things. Um, I, I, I hope, and I think the, the women's will be similar. Um, and I do hope it leads to an all women's, program i i wonder though like will it work because so far the cruiserweight has not worked uh at all um though i like 205 live but it, it's god awful in pre presentation the uk seems to be doing okay though because it seems like that's more in nxt's control and so vince is sort of removed um, so I, I'm curious. I'm curious who's who's sort of leading this charge and then how it will uh, move forward. Because I don't think it'll be a one-off. 
No. Uh, they wouldn't put that much effort into it otherwise, especially seeing what they did with the UK tournament and, and other words. And that was, you know, you know, again, built off partnerships with independents. Uh, they were working with Progress primarily, a UK independent promotion. So, uh, and they're doing a little bit of that with um, with the, the U with the women's one. Like a lot of the people involved in Shimmer or who have been involved in Shimmer will be showing up there. Folks from the independent scene. So uh, yeah, uh, uh, I, I'm I'm curious to see what happens. So now we, we, we've we kind yeah, of we we've caught done up to a the press section. Uh, and we've been talking for about about an hour about this. Oh, wow. I, I think we have I think we have one more thing. Unless you have something else that we should, I'll, I'll bring this up, and you can mm-hmm. let me know if you have a secondary thing you want to cover. One more thing yeah. we should cover before we close this out, and that's the term diva. Absolutely, because uh, we dropped it in there. Um, well, I think this can help transition to the other thing I wanted to talk about. Was just you know we kind of talked about the history, but sort of I think we can talk about a little bit just sort of overall you know, the role and presentation of sort of women's wrestling, um, which is sort of in general. Um, and, and, and I'll bring in some other things, but yeah, so I, I mean, it's pretty, it's like in the nineties that they start using Diva, right? Is that, or is it even earlier? I don't know if they started using it then, but whether it was then or not, I think they've sort of retroactively labeled Sunny as the first diva, and they were using it at least by 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Yeah, I guess, yeah, there's definitely, like, retroactive uh, stuff going on there. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, sorry. Uh, I just found a weird image while I was searching. Why oh, is that boy. there? Go, sorry, this is totally off topic. Go to the Women in WWE Wikipedia page. And I don't know what this opening thing is. It's this WWE Women's Intercontinental Extreme Championship. And there's this like, huh, tournament strike. Like, I guess somebody hasn't cleared this. I'm going to refresh. Yeah. Let's let's see how long it takes to, I'll I'll take a screenshot of this. That, Anywho, sorry, oh, no, everybody. For, uh, for some reason, someone on Wikipedia has put at the top of the page of women in WWE a tournament bracket that includes Anne Frank, Bernie Sanders, uh, King Kong, uh, and your winner, Adolf Hitler. Yeah. That is very weird. Alberto Dorito. That is weird, and I wonder how long it's been there. Anywho, I'm going to look up that stuff when I'm done. Edit view history. Anywho, um, I was gonna see if I could find where uh, where that started. Um, the term diva, but uh, yeah, I mean, so WWE starts, you know, referring to their women's wrestlers as divas, and this is similar in the way that they started referring to their male wrestlers as superstars, right? I mean, a lot of this is coached in WWE's obsession with branding and particularly trademarking. So. Uh, if we just call them women, that's not good enough. If we call them divas, we can sort of make it a sort of identifiable moniker. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still, it's still technically used because they're still total divas, right? Yeah, On the yeah, network. That's true. Uh, so they haven't completely uh, divorced themselves from that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was around for at least uh, a decade. 
Yeah, More. 10, maybe, yeah. maybe 15. 15 I'm years. thinking at least 15 years. Because the, uh, the Divas Championship got phased out at just, WrestleMania, uh, yeah, last year. So 2016. Years ago? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, that, Jesus. And it wasn't so, that long ago. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, at a basic level, it's just a sort of branding term. But obviously, if you're going to call your male performers, superstars, and your female stars, divas. Like, why did you choose diva? And I wonder, I think part of it, honestly, is probably VH1 divas. Uh, oh do we remember God. VH1 divas, right? Um, it's weird to think about this, right? I haven't because, thought about this in 10, 15 years. But think about it, right? Um, WWE has so sort of like co-opted this idea of being of diva um, I wonder, because VH1 Divas... Uh, first, first annual VH1 Divas concert. There's yeah. no doubt in my mind. There is no doubt in yeah. my mind that that's the origin. So, <laughs> I oh mean, that God. was really big. So I wonder if they were like, you know, if you use Diva to indicate, you know, amazing singers, it's a little different because it has its sort of history in the opera and... Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're just using it to describe anyone else, diva is generally a pejorative yep. of like you are overly, you know, sensitive or just any, yeah, any sort of like negative uh, perception of femininity one might have is sort of lobbed on that. And it's crazy that they kept it for so long. Um, and yeah, and particularly you know, the biggest moment being, and it was all, you know, the Divas Championship comes about because they wanted to have a separate title from the uh. women's title. And so, but the craziest part being when they sort of unified those back together, they'll, they're like, uh, let's stick with Divas. And they actually get rid of the women's championship. Um, Which is still just mind boggling to me. Yeah. And again, it, it's like WWE's branding and trademark obsession run amok because they can't trademark women. Um, you can't trademark, you know, wrestling women, uh, but they can kind of trademark a WWE diva, right? Um, as a sort of thing. But then that also has the sort of process of flattening them out, right? If you're all divas, you are all like already at a particular level and it's like lower. It's yeah. separate. Yeah, you're it's not a, you are different. not a superstar. Right. Um, and so now they've, that, that's been part of their push now is that every performer is, is labeled as a superstar. Um, and that's great. Um, nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, obviously some of their, they've had some, uh, roadblocks or some, uh, you know, trips, speed bumps in, in this so-called women's revolution. Number one, calling it that, um, it's again, WWE's like wanting to put a name Branded. and a brand on everything where it's like before they actually do the work, you're like, it, you're telling us, not showing us. Um, and that's a problem. Um, for all the good it did in terms of having great matches and main events, like that Sasha Banks Charlotte feud was God awful, in my opinion, like, like divorced from the wonderful stuff it was doing for women's wrestling in WWE. I don't, it wasn't that compelling other as a story as like they were, it, it's kind of like it ended up tokenizing because you were constantly referring to them as women where it's like, 
if you just treat it as normal, it'll go down easier than just being like, oh my gosh, look at these women. Look how great they are. And, I, and again, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm overly sensitive to it, but it's like, just like, let it work itself. But I don't know, maybe it's like taking a hammer where maybe a chisel would have worked better. But I don't know. I, I, it's not the worst thing. I think you just uh, described WWE as a general <laughs> using a hammer yeah. when a chisel would suffice. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that there's... I, I think it was definitely overblown. I, I don't want to say that I think it was horrible because I, I think that yeah. both, both wrestlers were doing really great work. That's true. Um, I, and I think, I think you could dispute some of the booking. Like I, I don't think it was... I don't think it was great to have Sasha win the title multiple times on Raw, but never be able to get a win on pay-per-view. Like that, that was kind of baffling. Um, again, oh, well, this is where we get back to the idea of divisions now. Oh, women's yeah. divisions. I, I want us to sort of, and I also want us to at least talk about this and maybe even end on this, of this like... Um, sort of segregation, right, Um, of women into their own sort of space. Um, And if that can sort of ever work. And and it can in some ways for WWE. Part of it has to be, you know, what kinds of stories are you telling? What types of promos or things are you allowing the women to get involved in? And a lot of, I think, the Sasha... Charlotte thing was like, okay, the things that are available to the men will also be available to the women. Mm-hmm. They can have a balls count anywhere or a hardcore Hell in a match, cell. right? Hell in a cell. Um, which is important work to do. But what's more important is, to, is the storytelling. And you tell stories for the women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll be interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I think they're still figuring that out. Like, how do you tell women's stories? And I don't know how many, if any, women are in the writing room, perhaps besides Stephanie, um, for WWE. Um, I, I don't know. Um, because it's just like any show. Like, it's hard to write. You know, if I'll be curious if they can do sort of, if they can you know, not just do, oh, this is what the guys are doing, so now let's have the women do it. Can you tell women's stories in wrestling? So I, I, I'm curious, and I know you can, and I'm curious if WWE can. Um, and it'll be interesting to find out, because that'll be a real test of, like, writing and audience reaction. Because um, if you're going to have women as a sort of separate division, I think that's what you should be trying to do like tell stories from a women's perspective uh, because then, then, then there's an advantage to having them sort of in their own division. Yeah. And there's, I think it's an interesting point. And I guess you and I are probably not qualified to comment on what (laughs) actually does constitute a women's story because I don't know. I don't know what that looks like in the context of a a WWE ring. Um, And I know that when you think about the style of women's wrestling and the people who get credit for that in sort of the modern WWE women's style, um, uh, Sarah D'Amato comes up a lot um, Mm -hmm. as being someone who really kind of at 
that level in NXT and now up on the main show really helped forge that style. But I yeah. don't I don't know who that person in the writers room is. Good uh, point. If, if there is one. Yeah. Um, and I and I, and there there have been some good examples. Like I do think Bailey's sort of rise in NXT oh God. was a really good and you know not just women's story, but I think it had a particular resonance as a woman's story. Uh, as this sort of you know she was this sort of fangirl sort of demure and she sort of had to find her own personality and confidence like it was an incredible story and i do think it was almost like a really good woman's story too like that she was coming from this place of a sort of lack of confidence and and sort of too much hero worship i think that was really great so i think there are models there mm -hmm. um and yeah, that's what I'm curious to see. And because that's the point I want to raise is, you know, we we're, we have its own, we're having our own episode on it. It has its own divisions, but, you know, there are examples of more mixing going on, whether that's in mixed tags, uh, which we have now instead of intergender tags, which are different, uh, because intergender means the genders can fight each other. Yep. Um, which you don't have very much, um, at least in America. Uh, the only, like, probably the biggest example of it is Andy Kaufman being the intergender champion, uh, but refusing to fight men, only fighting women. And or, I mean, this was... Or from your previous uh, previous recommendation, uh, Johnny Gargano and Candice LeRae. Absolutely, right? And and that's uh, sort of the point. You'll, you'll have it more on the independent scene, and then especially there is definitely that history um, in Mexican wrestling of a lot more fluidity between the sort of performers going at each other. And then in Japan, I would say it's even more divided actually, where you would, they really, it's often completely separate shows generally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are degrees and a spectrum as well. Um, and I think part of that is always going to be a reflection of how, that culture views professional wrestling um, and understands it. And, and I'm being very simplistic here and yeah. I apologize in advance uh, to, to generalize in this way. And there, and I'm sure I will have more opportunities and we will have more opportunities to go into detail in the future. Japan, there's, it's a puro, it's a stronger, more like hard hitting style. So it's meant to sort of, uh, at least appear a bit more legitimate in the sense of like uh, you're having less sort of holds that really don't make sense if you think about them striking. and a lot more striking. That would not work as well uh, if you had men fighting women. Striking in particular would not look very well of men versus women, right? Like there's always going to be this uncomfortable sense of men hitting women. Yeah. You know? Um, whereas Mexican wrestling, is, is a lot more uh, stylized and theatrical. You've got the masks, you've got mythology. Um, there's, there's a much less pretense of sort of reality there. And I think that plays into why sort of more uh, intergender mixed sort of uh, wrestling has worked a lot better in uh, sort of Lucha uh, Mexican tradition. Like why can't we have women fighting men, especially if this isn't real competition. If, if there right? are dragon men fighting dead men, why can't I believe yeah. that? Uh... And, you know, and there's arguments about this in 
legitimate sports, right? Like which sports should we have gender divisions and should we not? And, you know, generally the argument is, well, like men and women's bodies have, you know, certain uh, uh, limitations based on sex. Um, again, this is the sort of generalized argument mm -hmm. that others make, uh, but, you know, as that sort of defense, but that shouldn't even make sense in wrestling. And there are examples where wrestling has said, of course, that doesn't make sense. Like WWE puts in, you know, China into the Royal Rumble and has China win the Intercontinental title. Yep. Uh, Beth Phoenix uh, and uh, Amazing Kong, like others have been in the, in the Royal Rumble or fought men, but it's always this sort of spectacle moment and not treated as sort of normal. So it's like, okay, we can have a little flight of fancy, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm a big proponent of it, having uh, gotten into uh, Mexican Lucha Libre wrestling. Um, it depends on how you do it. It can go really well and it can go really bad. Um, and I think it takes, it requires a lot for finesse because of all, all the baggage that comes from men and women fighting and violence. Um, but if you're doing more grabs and holds and sort of high flying, you know, then it's just more dance almost. And that's okay. Like it's, I'm not going to feel as uncomfortable or if I do, you can sort of, uh, you can use it strategically it. Yeah. and you can use it strategically. Like sometimes we should feel uncomfortable, uh, if the story demands it, but we shouldn't always be feeling that. So, um, it's interesting. And I think it can lead to some really unique storytelling opportunities that, we've almost never seen in wrestling or very, very little. Uh, and I'm hopeful. That's why I'm also intrigued by it, just because I feel like there's a lot of potential there. Like uh, we can have storylines that cross those boundaries that can lead to some really interesting stuff. And and I, I harp on a lot. Lucha Underground has done this mm -hmm. or tries to do this. They've had some successes. They've had some really bad failures too. I think they're also a good indication. Like we shouldn't just look at them as what to do. Uh, and we had talked before recording that you've started watching. There is a really uncomfortable beginning to a story of basically a girl and two guys, and they like are involved in matches with each other. And there are some awkward, uncomfortable moments there. Uh, but it leads to something actually quite good. And they very, and it's very clear that they realized things were going wrong and <laughs> they came back and had something really awesome. Um, and uh, evil ease does a really good job there. Um, if just, if you're, if you're watching Lucha Underground, which you should evil ease, uh, the unlikely trio of evil ease, son of havoc and, and helico, it sort of starts off as a very like boyfriend, girlfriend, other guy comes in. Uh, people are having matches with each other uh, kind of thing. And, but then they, it comes down to this, like, three people who all hate each other but working together, and her being a woman becomes irrelevant, and it gets so much better after that. So, um, yeah, it's tough, but uh, there's some really interesting opportunities there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm curious to see where we go in the future. Uh, both, I guess, yeah, the, the ending these on these hopeful notes of either <laughs> storytelling that's predominantly from a women's perspective or women focused and maybe WWE will have that after this tournament. Um, and then the other side sort of storytelling that brings them together. Uh, Cause yeah, I don't, I hope so. I like it, but uh, I think, I think both can work. It depends on again, the larger 
type of story and the type of relationship your program has with reality uh, that you're going for. To, to your point uh, earlier, to some degree, you, you have to you have to prove that the market's there before the resources are going to be invested. And I think we 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 may have hit the point now where I think a lot of fans know this, but per, perhaps not WWE knows that there is a market there. Oh yeah. And now it's time to see how big that market is. And and to be fair, like there are people bemoan WWE's PG turn. Mm-hmm. That's a big reason why we can have the women's wrestling we have now because it forced them to be like, you better figure out what you're going to do with these women because you can't do what you've been doing. Um, And it's kind of great. Like, and that's why it was kind of terrible for a little bit because Mm -hmm. it was like those growing pains, but like, you know, it took us five or six, seven years to kind of get where we needed to be. Cause I think it was around 2009, uh, 2000 where WWE ships to like, we're going to be family friendly. Yeah. Uh, and it, in some ways that can be really great. Um, you know, it might put limits on the types of stories you can tell, but you can do really cool stories within those limits and do things that you maybe were not ever going to do beforehand. So um, more power to them. So with that, I think we should, uh, yeah. we, we could talk about this forever, but this is our, yeah. our overview 101. Let's, let's close yeah. out this lesson today. We'll ring the bell. And go uh, into our uh, our homework assignments. Yeah. Uh, oh man. Uh, got. I'm sure we got some fun ones. Yes. Uh, all all of our homework is fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's don't don't feel bad. Um. All all. I, I mean, there's so many we can do here. Yeah. Uh, both serious and silly. Um. If if, all, if you do, you have one in the in the chamber ready to go, or do you need to think about it? For sure. Me? No, I've got I've got at least one. All right. Um. I I feel like we'll. Well, we can sort of make one that we sort of both have. So uh, we're hopefully recording this around the time. Um, so uh, Netflix, I have not seen this yet, but Netflix is is coming out with a Glow uh, television, a television series based on Glow, which I mentioned in the episode. Um, Gen- Genji Cohen is, uh, Genji Cohen, I, I always mess up her name. Uh, my apologies to Genji Cohen. Uh, Genji Cohen is doing it. Uh, she uh, also did Orange is the New Black. Uh, so she's a really great person to be sort of doing this. Like it's a group of women, right? Uh, sort of in in a very interesting location. Um, I'm curious to see how they handle it. Like mm-hmm. Glow is a very over the. So it's, I can't recommend this. I'm just like because I haven't seen it. But keep an eye out. It's an FYI. Because uh, yeah, it's just like a keep an eye out because um, I don't know. Uh, but I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, I think it's got a good staff. Uh, uh, and yeah, might have that sort of female perspective again on, on wrestling. Um, so that's a more FYI, uh, something you can go watch, uh, that I know is hilarious, uh, and sort of building off of even my, my homework last week of, uh, Sting hanging out with weird people you don't expect Sting to hang out with. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, there is an episode, uh, you can find it online of Family Feud uh, from 1990 <laughs> uh, with the stars of WCW uh, going up against uh, the glorious ladies of wrestling. Uh, uh, it's awesome. Uh, it's like, you know, guys versus girls. Um, 
I'm going to get, I, I don't remember all of them, but the WCW team has Sting as the captain. Um, I know uh, Brian Pillman's on the team and Jim Ross. <laughs> Jim Ross is also on the team, everyone's favorite. Um, Glow, uh, oh gosh. Uh, I know you've got Godiva and Hollywood um, and Mount, Mount, uh, Mount Fuji Mount there, yeah. uh, is there. And then the best though is uh, Jackie Stallone. Uh, who's, uh, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone's mother was involved in Glow, and she was on this episode as well, um, uh, hanging with the with the glorious ladies. So uh, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm I'm doing a fun one because there's there's plenty of serious ones that, and I'm sure uh, uh, you might have one or yeah, two uh, yourself. So I'll give you uh, something silly to do. Uh, but if you want to uh, watch some of those glorious ladies uh, in in a outside the ring glorious and also of family trivia of that yeah gloff uh glorious <laughs> ladies of family feud um yeah it's pretty great because sting sting is is wonderful as as his team's captain uh as well so maybe i just got on a kick of like sting in like other areas of pop culture and it's lovely he's friends with robocop he's hanging yep. out on the set of Family Feud, it's pretty great. Yeah, he, he leads a rich life. But yeah, check it out. It's also interesting because you had these two different uh, promotions. I guess that's true. Yeah. On the show, you know, like they were like, oh, we could have just had like men and you know a bunch of WCW people, but yeah, they, you know, Glow was was getting popular, so uh, yeah, let's throw them on there. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's mine. So I'm going to have two, two recommendations. Uh, the first is uh, one of the books that uh, I think is good reading for history of women's wrestling. Uh, it's called Queen of the Ring. Uh, the author is, just a second, I did not have this handy. Um, let's see. Uh, I'll cut out the silence. Uh, the Queen of the Ring by, where is his name? Ugh. Uh, by Jeff Lean. Um, and it is a start-to-finish biography of Mildred Burke um, and kind of covers the rise and fall of, of Mildred Burke and wrestling of ladies' wrestling of that era. Um, so I, I would recommend that if you're interested in history. If you are interested in something more recent and something, I think, a little more uh, emblematic of maybe the direction women's wrestling is going... My favorite women's wrestling match of the last few years um, might, might be, at least WWE level, might be one that's a little little under the radar. Uh, it was uh, May 20th, 2015 at NXT TakeOver Unstoppable. And it was the NXT Women's Championship match between Sasha Banks and Becky Lynch. Um, Becky is of the current crop of women's wrestlers in WWE. She, she is my secret MVP. Um, mm -hmm. I've been a big fan of her. And what, what I appreciate about this match is the storytelling um, and the way it, it crystallized a lot of different pieces into a moment. So Sasha comes in as champion and Sasha is sort of the cocky heel at this point. And Becky had been in NXT for a, about a year and had gone through kind of an arc. She came in as a you know, generic Irish woman who wore green and danced a jig. Oh, and then God. she was uh, Bailey's friend. And then she betrayed Bailey. 
and she became, looked in the Oculus. Yep. Um, yeah. The NXT mirror that yep. turns all women evil. Uh, yep. That's they really need to get rid of that mirror. Um, but, um, she goes through a period where she is partnering with Sasha and then she and Sasha break, break apart and have this match to, to be set up. And Becky over this period had, had put together pieces of herself. Like she had kind of started to figure out some of her ring gear and figured out her moveset and figured out bits and pieces of her presentation, but she was still very much a, a work in progress. And when this match starts, she comes to the ring, and it's the first time that she's worn her steampunk gear, and it's oh. the first time she has dyed her hair blazing orange. Oh, yeah. She comes to the ring. She wrestles a 20-minute match uh, of really, really good storytelling. I mean, it's Sasha is working over an arm that had been injured, and Becky at several points is... is Near victory, and the arm gives out, and she ultimately loses because the arm can't can't hold one. And the the thing that is memorable for me after the match is the match is over. Sasha leaves, and Becky's in the ring, and Becky is crying in the mm. ring, and it it feels very real. Like it feels like the the moment was almost a little bigger than she was expecting it to be, and she she's laying in the ring crying, and to bring her back up the audience starts singing her theme song to her. Yeah, yeah. And you can just, you can tell that it's touching her. And it was like, when I was watching it live, that was the moment where everything that she had been putting together for a year crystallized and you could see her become a star. Yeah. And I feel like those moments when a wrestler becomes a star, when you can pinpoint them to like, you, th- you talked about Sting. When Sting went 45 minutes with Ric Flair at Clash of Champions, mm-hmm. he was a star. Yeah. And that was, that was a moment where Becky Lynch became Becky Lynch. And it's on the network. I love it. It's a great match. And it's a great piece of storytelling. And that's a great example of like delayed gratification or like, because I recall that there was an assumption that's like, it was. It had built for Becky to win that match in the sort of normal, uh-huh. like okay, she's like been overcoming this sort of adversity, and yep. like it would have made sense. So it was kind of, I think, shocking that she didn't win, but because of that ending you just described, was ultimately better for. Her. Like, it's an example of like she lost that match, but she won way more in that process. And, and uh, like th- th- three months yeah. later, like uh, two or three months later. Um, Charlotte and Sasha come up yeah. to the main roster. And on the same night, Becky comes up with them. And I think if it weren't for this match and this night, Becky's not coming up with them. Hmm. Possible, yeah. yeah. For sure, especially, you know, again, Bailey ended up staying a lot longer. So, yeah, uh, yeah good choice. Uh, I, I also, I have a, a, a bit of extra credit. Okay. Uh, I've been saving this one for a while, but for the perfect moment, uh, so there uh, is a, in the world of comics, superhero comics, uh, Marvel Comics, there is a group, a fictional organization known as the Grapplers, uh, which is a, a group of female wrestlers or female wrestler-themed characters, villains, supervillains, not supervillains, villains, uh, 
And yeah, I mean, that's basically it. They, 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 <laughs> they are, they haven't been around a lot. I think he just looked up a picture. Uh, they include people like pound cakes, uh, sushi, baba boom, butterball, uh, screaming Nimi, who would go on to become songbird, uh, a very awesome villain in more contemporary, um, uh, comic. She's really the only person who's kind of stuck around. They're, they're, uh, they're like the, the Marvel equivalent of the female furies. If they were wrestlers. Yeah. It's pretty great. Wow. Um, so, uh, I don't know anything about, you don't have like the classic grapplers arc you could recommend. Yeah, I don't. Um, I mean, I know some of them fought Miss Marvel, I think at some point, maybe, uh, pound cakes, maybe, uh, who's my favorite. Uh, did she pick that name? Probably. Um, (laughs) Hey, I didn't mention Magilla, who, yeah, she's known for her excess body hair. Um, yeah. So, anywho. Uh, You've been yeah, saving that one. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's really weird. Um, uh, I guess, my guess is, I think they debuted in like the late seventies, early eighties. So this sort of time period, I'm guessing where it's like started to get louder, started to get sillier. Someone was like, this would be like, I bet I could uh, throw this into the world of comics. So yeah, uh, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, created by John Byrne, who would be the only person in that period of time who would create these characters. Yeah. So I love, cause I first found out about this when I was actually playing uh one of the Lego Marvel games. I don't recall which one. Uh, and like those games are great because they have like over a hundred characters. So they have like lots of obscure Marvel characters that you can unlock um, in Lego form. And they had pound cakes. And I, when I got pound cake, uh, I was like, uh, who the hell is this who person? Is this? I need to look up pound cakes. And then I look up, I'm like, oh my God, there's this entire uh, world of uh, female wrestling uh, superhero, superhero, or supervillains, um, which is great. So, like, there wasn't, yeah. Like, it's uh, Auntie Freeze, Letha, Screaming Mimi, Pound Cakes, Battle Axe, Gladiatrix, Titania, oh, Vavavoom, Magilla, Butterball, Cowgirl, Gold Digger, and Sushi. Yeah, there's some great, yeah, great, great images. Uh, I don't think they've really been brought back. Uh, recently but i'm I'm hoping for some i think they're they're due for a a revamp maybe i don't know uh could be could be cool but uh yeah they were organized for the gritty revamp of the grapplers i'm just saying you know marvel's the c the cinematic universe is eventually going to run out of uh villain so uh uh i know uh, on our uh and stop out there's there's a marvel podcast yep uh whenever they inevitably have the uh <laughs> we'll the we'll guess show. we'll i'll be a guest yep i'll be a guest we'll bring you into the panel <laughs> for the conversation about like, oh, the I'll grapplers be. movie which uh you know any day now waiting for the announcement you know i think good good chance i'm feeling pretty good yeah yeah uh, here's your extra credit uh Another little tidbit of extra credit to update um, our first bit of extra credit. Um, when 
uh, Stefan, you helpfully mentioned the several nature boys that existed. Uh -huh. uh, there was also a nature boy in Glow uh, who was played by the director's son um, <laughs> who was led around on a leash by a female wrestler uh, named Jungle Woman. Um, and he huh. was called the nature boy. Um, obviously a sort of wink at the much more popular. So I need to update. We said there were three nature boys. Actually, there was four. If we count this mm -hmm. obscure character from glow, Tony Simber. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we even have a, an addendum to an earlier, um, to an earlier, uh, extra credit. So <laughs> I learned something today. Good. Um, I'm hoping this, uh, we now fade out. Yep. Um, we'll, we'll begin to fade, <laughs> but it, it, <laughs> it's some good old nature boy. Yep. Uh, if if you enjoyed uh, this this episode uh, or hated it, uh, go to iTunes and review us. Uh, if you listen to this podcast through uh, a catcher like Overcast, you can like us, recommend us. Uh, where can people find you on Twitter, Drew? Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> at, uh, at... <laughs> my, uh, you can find me at dzolides d-z-o-l-i-d-e-s you can find me at stefan claypool s-t-e-f-a-n-c-l-a-y-p-o-o-l we both apologize for having names that need to be spelled uh, every time we, we tell people where to find us yeah um, but I'm not changing it I'm not changing it for Hollywood yeah my name is my name <laughs>